Today's reading is from the letter to the Romans, chapter 12, verses 3 through 8. It's on page 948. For the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith if service in our servings, in one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortion, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is the word of the Lord. Hello, everybody. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> well, um, I haven't had a chance to say welcome, so welcome. Good to have you guys here and Glad to be here. Um, I'm glad to be able to uh, bring the message today um, as we continue with our series, Think Next, part two today. Last week, we began the sermon series, um, Think Next, and the title was Living Offerings for God's Kingdom Dream. And you were asked to think about this question. What is, what is your life, uh, your living offering to God's kingdom? What, what does that look like? And um, as we thought about this question, actually, it's really a privilege, isn't it, um, to offer our lives as a living act of worship to Jesus. We come then to today's question. Today's question that we're going to explore is, what does offering my life to Jesus look like? What does um, that look like? And verses 3 through 8 paint for us a picture of what it looks like to offer your life as a living sacrifice. And so we have the title today, What Being a Living Sacrifice Looks Like. What does being a living sacrifice look like? So for that, uh, we look at the Word of God here, beginning with verse 3. And so let's actually all read that together. Go ahead. For by the grace... So, um, there are going to be three points today, and um, three major points, and at each point, I'm going to ask you to kind of 
I'm going to give you a little homework and encourage you to think about each of these points because they kind of connect and build into each other. And um, you know, obviously, it's it, it's good to hear the word, but it's even better to apply it. Amen. So during the week, I'll give you little things and just to think about little things to think about um, throughout the week for each point. So point one is this: before God can give you a picture of what it looks like to be a living sacrifice, he first tells you to take a picture of yourself. Take a selfie. <laughs> All right? And, um, you know, I think it, it's a logical thing, right? If, if we want to know what our life can look like as a living offering to God, to, to God, we first need to then kind of know what we're working with, Right? We need to know what's the starting point here. And so it, it makes a lot of sense when God talks about the spiritual gifts and all of that. He starts out in verse 3 with, first, take a look at yourself, right? Look at yourself. Make sure you don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. I don't know about you, but sometimes, um, for me, when I take a look at myself, I'm not always honest, right? I sometimes lie to myself. Um, I'm guessing I'm not the only one who does that, right? Um, and it's kind of kind of funny that we we lie to ourselves because, really, like who are we trying to fool, right? Because the people around us, for the most part, they know you, and they part of knowing you means they know your weaknesses, they know your flaws, they know your foibles, right? And um, it, it's interesting that we so often lie to ourselves trying to think that we can hide those things when really people around us, at least the people who know us, it's already all out there. They already know. We don't need to lie about that. We don't need to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. So why do we do that if we know that people already you know, see these things about us? Well, the main reason is we like to think more highly of ourselves than maybe the actual facts warrant. We like to have a, you know, kind of an inflated view of ourselves, right? We like to think we're stronger, faster, more handsome, smarter, you know, all these things. We like to think that, um, you know, uh, we're nicer and more generous than we actually are. But if you ask our, you know, our family members or our friends, oh, they're... They, they think they're this way, but really, uh, you know, that's, that's a nice thought. <laughs> that's cute, right? Um, we like to think more highly of ourselves. So this is why we don't like hearing criticisms, right? We don't like hearing that. This is why we don't like weight scales, right? We like to think more highly, or in this case, more lowly of ourselves, right? That's, that's me. I don't know. Anyone else with me on that one? Yeah. Um, it's why we shy away from hearing about our weaknesses and those kind of situations where they may be exposed. And it's why we're not as shy to run into those situations where maybe our strengths will be highlighted, right? We like to think more highly of ourselves. It's just natural. The funny thing is, if you don't think that you do this, that's actually a very good warning sign that maybe you do. Right. You think you don't lie to yourself, most likely you do. 
Now, when someone thinks more highly of themselves than they ought to, this causes problems. And the problem I want to talk about today is it gives rise when you think more highly of yourself or when someone else thinks more highly of themselves than they ought to, it gives rise to relational conflicts, right? Think about that. It does, doesn't it? How many times have you had a relational conflict because someone had a higher opinion of themselves than, than you do, right? Or vice versa. And it causes pain. It causes pain in your life. It causes discomfort when you have like relational drama, right? When we think too highly of ourselves, it grows a, a heart of pride and arrogance within us. And this leads to harm and grief for the people around you, for you, and harm and grief to even God. It causes God grief when we have a higher opinion of ourselves than we ought. And this is why God then lovingly teaches us to take an honest look at yourself. When you take an honest look at yourself, that's actually an act of worship. It's actually good. You should do it. Do it a lot. Do it often, please. <laughs> right? It's your act of worship to think of yourself not as highly as you maybe thought previously. Now, how can you do that? God teaches us to take a look at ourselves, and he says there in, in this verse to look at yourself with sober judgment. Right? That makes a lot of sense, right? To be objective in how you view yourself. Um, I taught you, and I compared it to taking a selfie before. You know, take out the filters. No filters where it makes you look this certain way with this certain look. Or Take it all out. It's just you there. And the measure then that he wants you to put on and superimpose maybe and kind of compare is his measure. His standard of what's good. That's what it says there, right? You are to think with sober judgment according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Notice, it doesn't say eat, uh, look at yourself according to the measure of faith that you have assigned. It doesn't say that. So it doesn't really matter if you think you're okay. What really matters is what does God think? The measure that God has assigned. Okay, so where do we find this measure? Do we go, you know, to the hardware store and find where do we find this measuring stick? Where do we? Well, the measuring stick that is not of our making, but of God's make, you know, of God's origin, is Jesus. It's the Word of God. Jesus is the Logos. Those of you who were in the men's ministry last year and, and you know this past uh, run. You guys remember, maybe, that Jesus is the Logos, right? John chapter 1. He is the Word. Logos means the Word. He is the Word. So Jesus, the Word of God, is the measuring stick. And so you are to, when it says here, to think of yourself not more highly than you ought, but to, in sober judgment, according to the measure of faith that God has assigned, you're supposed to look at Jesus and look at yourself. Now, that's kind of intimidating, right? <laughs> but this is what God lovingly is telling us. He's not saying this to us 
to make you feel embarrassed. He's not saying this to make you feel bad or condemn, you know, condemnationally about yourself. He's saying this because I want to build something on top, and if we're going to build something on top that lasts, then the foundation has to be solid. So let's start with the foundation. Let's start with you before we can take a look at what an offering looks like. Take a look first at yourself. All right. Now, there's a second part to this uh, verse 3 that I want to highlight, or more of an application. And verse 3 here has an important application for how you dream. We've been talking about dreams like, you know, last week and um, and. You know, Pastor Susung, he, he likes to talk about dreams. I think we all can relate to that. In verse 3, we're instructed to not think more highly of ourselves than we ought. And for me, the application that I want to bring to you today is this also includes how you see your dreams. Let me explain. None of us here would openly admit that you think you're higher than God, Right? None of you here would say, here's God, and here's me. <laughs> you wouldn't openly say that. And yet, how often do, we, do we, we catch ourselves telling God what he should do? How often do you catch yourself telling God what your life should look like? And it's almost like, you know, I do this. We treat God like a gopher at work, like some intern fresh out of college, you know, college graduates, no offense, just part of life. We all went through it. It's okay. It'll be okay, right? But it's not okay when we treat the creator of the universe and the one who was there before you, before the mountains, before the stars, the one who died and laid down his life for you, to treat him like a gopher, right? Um, another way to think about it, who here, uh, when you drive, likes a backseat driver? Raise your hand. <laughs> Jeffrey, Jeffrey. <laughs> okay, neither do I, right? Nobody likes a backseat driver because they're so annoying, right? Well, I have a confession and it's not with my wife, even though I do kind of do that with her. With God, sorry, by the way, honey. See, I'm confessing in front of everybody. With God, my lips often say, God, I want you to guide my life. Show me what you, how often do we pray that? God, I just want to know what to do here in this situation. Show me what to do. And, and we, 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 you know, we pray this, and then you know, we, we read the Bible. You know, those of us who are believers, we read the Bible, and those passages we, where Jesus is called my Lord, which translates to master. When you say my Lord, you're saying my master. Okay, it's a very strong word. But yet, we treat God like we're his master. Oftentimes, you know, maybe we don't think it in our minds, but it's how we act. Right? We act like it. We would never say, God's here and I'm here. But we act like that, don't we? We're like the backseat driver. We're like this guy. Right? And look at this. You guys know probably, you know, if you've seen this show, Seinfeld. This guy, George Costanza, he is 
I would have to say, the most, the most annoying character in all of TV history, okay? And he's just being himself, telling the, the cab driver what to do. He is the ultimate backseat driver. And here's, I wonder if this is how God looks like <laughs> sometimes when he looks at how we run our lives. God, you're the one. You're my Lord. You're my master. You're the one. I follow you. Tell me. Show me what to do. And then as soon as he tells us what to do, we're like, eh, I think we should turn left instead. I'd rather do that instead. So really, we need to ask ourselves, is God driving or am I? Is God driving or are you driving? Let me tell you a story. Uh, the Bible is full of these instances where people had their own ideas and their own dreams of their own making. And even some of these dreams are even actually like good dreams. They're like good ambitions and things for God. It's not even for like a greedy, selfish thing. It's for God. And God would still say something to them like, I'm paraphrasing here. Uh, hello, that's your dream. <laughs> right. Did you ever ask me what I wanted you to do? It's great that you want to do this, but I actually need you to do this. Can you do this instead? No, 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 but this, you're going to love it, God. This is so good. This is so good. Yeah, I understand, but I need you to do this. Who's, who's driving? Who's following who? Who's leading who there? God, and where are you? Right? It's, it's, a, it's a conversation in a situation, in a fight we, we, we do every day. Like we learned at the retreat, it's a fight, isn't it? It really is. And so there's a story of um, a man who actually did this in the Bible, King David, one of the most beloved kings of um, Israeli history. King David knew that there were other nations that had built these showy places of worship, you know, kind of like a Vegas type, type of thing uh, for their false gods. And he's thinking, they built that for a false god. And then he also realized that he himself, as a king, lived in this nice place built of like the finest cedar. And he's thinking, wow, this is so nice. I'm the king. I get to live here. And there was something bothering him. What bothered him was that at this time, there was no temple for his god, for Yahweh. And so he's looking at like all the other false gods who don't deserve those things. He's looking at his own dwelling place, like, man, I live in a nice, I live in, and you know what they did for the Ark of the Covenant, which kind of symbolized the presence of God? They put it in a tent, which was just like a, a temporary, you know, pitch and go, and you can pitch it again. So it wasn't even permanent. It wasn't anything special. And so this grieved David, and it, uh, he said, this isn't right. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to build the best most beautiful, this temple is going to blow their minds. The other people who worship those other gods are going to come and they're going to cry, right? And so this is his ambition. And so he, he's about to, to start doing this and, and, you know, thinking that this is what God deserves. It's a beautiful dream. He's, it's 100% heartfelt and sincere, okay? It really is a sincere dream. And yet, do you know what God said to David? God basically said, no, David, I don't want you to do that. And in fact, it even in 2 Samuel chapter 7, you can look later after service, God even says, 
did I ever ask you to build a house for me? He says that. And then, just to, just to remember that God is a very personal God, okay? And then, you know what else God said after that? He said, that's fine, but you know what? I never asked you to build a house for me. And he said to David this, instead, David, I'm going to build up your house. I'm going to build you a house. Your offspring are going to explode and be high and blessed and, and experience my favor. How ironic is that? David comes to God with his dream for God, and God says, uh-uh. I have a better dream for you. The point is, you can never outdream God. You can never outdream God for your life, and you can never outdream God for your church, and you can never outdream God for your world. God's dream for you, God's dream for the church, God's dream for the world far surpasses any dream that any of us could ever have, even with the aid of foreign substances, okay? Whatever dream you can try to dream up, it does not compare to the dream that God has for you. You can't outdream God. And that includes dreams for your own life. So you can surrender, let go, relinquish your dreams, because those dreams really aren't that great. You may think they're great right now, but I challenge you, let go and receive God's dream. And you'll say, oh, <laughs> like David, oh. And you know what David, how David responded? Two things. One, he was so blown away that in that chapter talks about his response to God. This response of joy and just like mind blown, like here I am trying to build something for God and God says, I'm going to build something for you. Who am I that he would be mindful of me? Who am I that he would love me like this? Who am I that he would build such a thing for me? I wanted to do that great thing for him. He wants to do that great thing for me. What a loving, good God I serve. You see? And second thing, he doesn't build it. So this is one case where David actually does what God tells him to do. What he knows God wants him to do. There are other cases where he didn't, just like the rest of us, right? David thought of himself more highly than he ought, thinking he knew what God needed. But the reality is God didn't want a grand gesture. He just wanted obedience. And that's the same thing that applies to you. God doesn't need your grand gestures. When he needs them, he'll let you know. What he needs from you, what he wants and desires from you, is faithfulness. Are you hearing me? He desires your faithfulness. Sometimes, you and I, we can get so caught up in achieving a dream for God, and these are, again, these are not bad, like, selfish, greedy, self-serving dreams. I'm talking about like good dreams, like, you know, putting a second floor on this church or, you know, starting some Awana program at New Hope. These are all great ideas. But sometimes we can get so caught up in achieving a dream for God that we forget to ask God himself 
if this is what he wants. So when you go home, think of that, all right? Think about that. Do you have a heartfelt and sincere dream for God, just like David? Maybe, just maybe, God has something else for you. But you're not going to know that unless you ask him. So sit, pause, and ask, God, is this what you want? Verse 1 and 2, it says, it doesn't say offer a dead sacrifice. It says to offer a living sacrifice, right? Last week, Romans 1 and 2. So what does a living sacrifice look like? It always, a living sacrifice always, always begins with this. Read that together. If you're a believer, I want you to just close your eyes right now and actually tell God that right now. Say it right now. God, what, what do you want me to do? Look, it's okay to have dreams for God. It's, it's great. You should. But you should also be ready to surrender those dreams. You should also submit those dreams to God and say, God, what do you think? Yes, no, change, wait. He's the driver, not us. Amen? And so as we think of ourselves soberly in the light of Christ, as we approach God with let your will be done, not my will be done, and as this self-examination from verse 3, as you go through this self-examination, what happens is, if you do it right, it should produce in you a heart of humility. What I mean is this. As you look upon the measure of Jesus, and as you look upon yourself, and if you're being honest, you realize, whoa, God is awesome, and I'm not so much. I'm okay, though. <laughs> you know? And you get to see yourself in the grand scheme of God's standard. That's not actually a bad thing. It's actually a blessing. Because then it allows room in your heart to appreciate God. Because if you think you're better than God, or if you think more highly of yourself than you ought, there's no room for God in your life. There's no room for you to appreciate and love God. Because it's all about you. And so you end up just worshiping you. And God says, no. Don't worship you. There's something better to worship me. I love you. I died for you. I created you. You rebelled against me. I forgave you. You rebelled against me again. And I was long-suffering and patient with you and gentle. How many of us can say that to people who repeatedly insult and trespass against us? But God does. God is long-suffering. It's much better to worship him than to worship ourselves. Amen? 
And so as we go through this process of verse 3, self-examination, it produces a teachable, humble heart in us. And this leads to point two. Humility, write this down. Humility cultivates unity amidst diversity. Let me say that again. Humility, okay, it cultivates unity amongst diversity. A lot of times when there's diversity, it's hard to find unity. Am I right? I mean, you guys probably can see this all over the place, in your work, in your family, at school, right? When there's a bunch of different points of views and a different bunch of you know, uh, value systems and priorities and they're all competing with each other, are you gonna find unity there? Where there's diversity, a lot of times, it doesn't lend itself very well to unity. So what must you inject into that to have unity? Humility. You have to consider your interests under the interests of the greater good. Humility. You have to understand that that person's point of view and that person's point of view is, is not something you can just unilaterally dismiss and poo-poo and disrespect, even if they're not a Christian, even if they don't believe in Yahweh. First Peter tells us this. Always be ready for a defense for, to give a reason for what you believe and do this with gentleness and with respect. You need to have humility in order to cultivate unity amongst diversity. Now, why is this important? Let's read this. For whether you like it or not, Look around. Whether you look like it or not, these are the people that God wants you to love. <laughs> All right? And you might be thinking, well, that's not true. If I leave this church and go to the you know, brighter, shinier, better church with the bells, guess what? It's the same thing. I'm a pastor. I've been a professional pastor for 20 years. It's the same thing. <laughs> I've been to mixed uh, ethnicity churches, mono-ethnic churches, small churches, big churches, churches in NorCal, churches in SoCal. It's all the same. People have flaws no matter where they are. And so God has put you here and amongst the diversity, what he's saying is you need to have unity. And in order to have unity, you must not think of yourself more highly than you ought. Have humility, okay? And why is this so something that God wants? Because the truth is, when we are, when we are, uh, when we confess that we believe in Jesus, when we confess that He resurrected, and we confess that He is the Son of God. At that moment, what happens, and this is in Romans 10, you are then saved. You are then, Jesus literally takes you and grafts you into his body, and now you become one body in Christ. And you live happily ever after. 
not. Because there are hundreds and hundreds of other people who have made the same confession as you, and Jesus, loving them too, grafted them into his body. Current world population statistics say that there are about 2 billion people who identify as Christians right now. That means there are, you know, if that stat's, you know, accurate, let's just say it is. I don't think it's that many, but anyway, let's say it is. That means there are 2 billion people grafted into, right now, who are living into the body of Jesus. Not to mention all the people from the past. So why is unity diff- so important? Because in unity with Christ, there is unity with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And that's the whole point of your, your, your salvation. That's the whole point of the gospel. That which was far through his blood was brought near. You guys know that verse? You were once divided from God with a wall of hostility. And it was through Christ's blood that that wall was broken down. And you who were far are now brought near. And you know what? It's not just you. It's not just for you. It's for that guy that you find annoying. It's for that girl that you don't like. It's for that person who backstabbed you, but they say they're a Christian. Hey, guess what? We all make mistakes. That's why we need a Savior. So why are we surprised when we are grafted into the body of God, you know, Christ next to someone else that you know, is imperfect in our eyes? The reason they're grafted into Christ is because they admitted, yeah, I am imperfect. That's why I need a Savior, just like you. It's unity. Unity is all, is at the center of Christianity. It really is. That's why he sent his son, so that we could be not far, but united, not separated from God, but together with God. Creator and creation. Diversity brought together in one body. We have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. Diversity, creator, creation, God, and us. We also have this happening here. You're good at that. She's good at this. We have different functions, different talents, different gifts. And so the, we, though many, you can also put diverse there, are one in Christ. Again, the very heart of Christianity, united to God himself. And individually, this is really interesting, we are members one of another. So not only are you united to Christ, (laughs) you are united to each other. Look at each other and say, I'm united to you. Look at the person that annoys you and say that. Oh, no, don't do that. (laughs) Do that in private with me, and we'll mediate, okay? You're united to that person. You know what this means? You're also united to the Apostle Paul. Think about that on your way to work. You're united to the 12 disciples. You're united to Martin Luther King Jr. Yeah. I mean, that's just the tip of the iceberg, right? You guys can name so many more. Corey Ten Boom. I mean, so many people, heroes of faith, Jim Elliott, Elizabeth. I mean... It goes on and on. You're united. You're one of them. You're united to them, and they are united to you. And most importantly, again, 
you're united to Christ. That man, Bartimaeus, we sing that song, Son of David, who was blind, and then he was healed by Jesus, and then most importantly, he then followed Jesus. The most important thing was not that he was healed, it was that he followed Jesus, amen? You're united to him. The woman in the Bible whose sins were forgiven and who no one would give a second look at because she was so nasty and dirty, the woman who was so grateful to Jesus for loving her when no one else would, who would look at her and talk to her like a human being when no one else would, and so grateful and so incredulous at such love and grace that she began to wash the feet of Jesus with her own tears of joy, you're united to her, and she's united to you. How beautiful is that? And so, in the midst of all of this diversity, God is saying this to you. I love you. And I love that other person. And so I want you guys to love each other. You're united to me. You're united to me. Guess what? You're united to each other. Love one another as I have loved you. And so, I want you to think about that. Like I said, whether you like it or not, this is it. This is who we're supposed to love. We're united to one another. And I want you to really think and pray on that this week. And that then leads to the next point. Okay, God, you want me to love one another. How? How? I'm not a very touchy-feely kind of guy. You know that guy. I'm kind of shy. I'm kind of quiet. I'm kind of mean. <laughs> How do I love? I'm glad you asked, God says. And he gives us seven examples very clearly how you can love and express that unity of the body of Christ. And here they are. Let's read that together. Having gifts... So point three is this. If we are to love one another, here are seven ways to be a living sacrifice to God. Seven ways to be a living sacrifice to God. One of the ways that God gives you and I um, a channel of expression to love Christ and love one another is through the use of spiritual gifts. He gives you a spiritual gift that he desires for you to then use to love one another. Does that make sense? You following me? Not if, if you are. Okay. He gives you a spiritual gift that you're to use to serve and love one another. Okay? Every Christian has a spiritual gift. So if you believe that Jesus, again, is the Son of God and that he resurrected on the third day, 
then you, my friend, have been given a spiritual gift by none other than God himself. All right? <clears throat> so we're going to go through this list here. And, of course, what I want you to do is I'm going to explain and describe a little bit of each. Some of them are more self-explanatory than others. Um, and as we do that, I want you to really kind of look at yourself, like verse 3 said. Remember, we started with verse 3. Take a look at yourself. And I want you to see which of these kind of resonates with you and with your past experience and with maybe what other people have told you and your church leaders have maybe said to you. Okay? Um, if it happens that none of these kind of resonate with you, don't be alarmed. And, and you know that you're a Christian, it's okay. You're, you're not, not a Christian. Okay? All it means is you probably have a gift that's on the four other lists that God gives us in the Bible. There's uh, Ephesians 4, write these down, um, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Peter 4, and then our passage today, Romans 12. Okay, so this, today, this, these seven are, is not an all-inclusive list. So if you don't see anything here that kind of resonates with you, don't worry. Go ahead and look at the other uh, passages, and maybe you will. And even if you don't find it there, hey, that's what I'm here for. I love doing it. Um, talk to me, and we can walk through that process together. I would love to do that, okay? All right, here we go. You guys ready? Yeah? Say something. Okay, thank you. Um, <clears throat> so this is a picture of, of, of the living sacrifice to God. Number one, prophecy. This is probably the most uh, ambiguous, kind of mysterious one, so I'm going to spend the most time on this. The others are not as, um, not as. So this spiritual gift is when God reveals something to a person, and then that person speaks that to God's people. Okay, so God gives something to a person, and that person speaks it to, you know, God's people or a person for the purpose of their upbuilding, okay, building them up in Christ, okay? So if you can imagine all of you are building a house, you know, your relationship with Jesus, okay? It's you're building a structure, all right? And of course, you want it to be strong and, and big and, and healthy, right? And so a person who has a gift of prophecy helps you build your spiritual house. Make sense? It's for your upbuild, uh, for people's upbuilding. It's for their encouragement. Now, a lot of times we think of encouragement as like cheerleading. Woohoo! Last night we showed our kids Bring It On. I don't know why. Um, but it's just one of those movies that you, I guess, you know, cultural type of thing. And anyway, it's not like a cheerleading encouragement necessarily. It can be. But I like to think of encouragement as more than just cheerleading, yay, you're so good, more as encouraging to go to God, pointing to God. So if I'm talking to this brother here, I'm going to encourage him not by saying, you're so great, woo-hoo-hoo. I might, if he needs it. <laughs> but more importantly, I want to encourage him to the source of life. I want to direct him that way. That's, that's how I think of encouragement. And thirdly, consolation, to comfort. And I'm getting that, where am I getting this? You go, oh, are you just making, no. I'm getting that directly, I'm lifting that literally from 1 Corinthians 14. Okay, so you can look there. The gift of prophecy is for upbuilding, encouragement, consolation. Now, this gift can be confused with, um, like, you know, the Old Testament prophets. 
It's not the same thing. The Old Testament prophets, the main difference is this, okay? There's a lot of different, but this is the main one. Old Testament prophets, whatever God told them, okay? Um, and if they were true, because there were false prophets back then too, but if they were true, their words would become scripture. Nowadays, scripture is closed. So when we have the gift of prophecy, we do not add to scripture. Our words are not the same as scripture, okay? So that's kind of the main difference between like the Old Testament prophets and our um, New Testament prophet, uh, you know, and, and modern day gift of prophecy. So let me just give you some examples, okay? Because again, I'm not going to do this for all of them, but this one, I think you need some examples, okay? So um, some of you know that uh, I've been meeting with people doing like counseling sessions and uh, so I'm going to share two. One, there was, uh, there's this woman, um, and um, so she, she wanted to schedule a counseling session with me, and she, she asked my wife to come along, and so, um, so we went. And uh, before we went, we prayed, and uh, that's what I do because I don't know what God wants for me to say to this person. Usually I don't know. They just want to say, Pastor John, can we meet? Uh, okay. And I'm just hoping it's not something horrible, right? And I pray. I say, God, what, what, what do you want me to say? Like, is there something you want me to do for this person? And in this particular case, um, as my wife and I were praying for this person, um, God gave us this uh, verse, and there was uh, a verse that um, was on a gift. So we got this gift, and there was a verse on it. Okay, this is what we're going to do. So we go. The day comes, we go. And we, didn't, we don't actually give it to this person until um, later on, until it's actually like relevant to what our discussion and conversation. That's all the way all it is, really. It's just a conversation. You can ask the people around you who've done it. It's just a conversation, just talking. And in the course of that conversation, we oh, this is a good time to give this gift with this Bible verse. So we give it. And then she doesn't quite have a look of someone who received a gift right, on her face, really. Did we do something wrong here? And so we kind of ask, are you okay? Like, and she goes, well, after seeing your gift with the, this Bible verse, I think God is trying to tell me something. Like, oh, what makes you think that? Because I've been praying about certain things, and the verse that God keeps giving me is this verse. Did I know that? Did my wife know that? No. But God knew. The gift of prophecy is when God tells you something, and then you kind of just go, okay. <laughs> and we went over to her house, and we offered her this verse, you know, some other stuff too. And what it did for her was, whoa, so big deal, you know, it's a coincidence or something, right? What's the big deal? The big deal is this. For that person, because God was telling her this thing, this Bible verse, She's like, okay, okay. But knowing that she hadn't shared with us before we got that gift what was on her mind, but it was the same verse, now she knows that God knows her sorrows and her struggles. And now she knows that God, she's reminded that God is real and that God spoke to her and God spoke to Pastor Young and Christy 
And he's trying to tell me something, like she said, that gave her that scared kind of, whoa, look. And I said, yep, that's, that's what God's telling you. And it uplifted her. It upbuilt her. It encouraged It consoled her. Again, 1 Corinthians 14. Second example. Um, same kind of situation, counseling, but a little different. This person went, um, she was, you know, going through some stuff. Her friend said, hey, you should um, receive some prayer from somebody that I know. So she goes, and I, I think she's never met this person, um, I think, if I'm remembering correctly. And so she goes, and this person prays for her and says just this, never, they've never met, right? I think, right? And um, I, I know this, that she didn't really share what's going on, and he says, God wants you. God wants you, something along those lines, okay? And I don't know this. Fast forward a couple months, and uh, this person approaches me and says, I need a consultation time with you. Okay, let's do it. And so, again, same thing, same process. I pray, God, what do you, what do you want me to say to this person? I, I don't know exactly what's, you know, what, you, what the purpose is for this um, in your eyes, so... Again, like that living sacrifice picture, God, what do you want me to do, right? Um, I could give her like a 50-minute sermon about something, but is that what God wants me to do? I got to ask, right? So I ask. And, and so we go. The day comes. We go. And uh, my wife is with me there as well because she was requested. And then as she's sharing, I'm sensing that God, I think, and I say you know, to this woman, I think God is saying he, he wants you. Like, he wants you. He wants to be, just be with you. He wants you to be with him. Same thing. This woman goes, huh. I go, what's huh? Well, I had just, I had gone to this person. He prayed for me. I never met him. And he said this same thing, and it was the same exact thing that you just said. I've never met this guy that she received prayer from. Never talked to him about this person. So what does that tell you? There's a third party involved. His name is God. And God wanted to tell this person that he wanted her. And what's interesting, how does, it, how does that help? Is this just another cool coincidence? What's the purpose, you may ask? Good question. The purpose is when she went to this other person, it's kind of, and then she heard God wants you, it's kind of like, uh, Okay, I guess. File that in the back of my mind, right? Put that in the file of, well, I don't know exactly what that means, right? But then several weeks later, when someone completely independent of that situation comes to her with the same exact message, now she, now we're cooking. Now she knows, oh, this is not just from that guy that I met and who prayed for me. This is not just from Pastor Young. This is from God. And God is telling me he wants me. And that uplifted her, and that consoled her, and it encouraged her. So that's the gift of prophecy. Those are examples. Couple things. I don't go around calling myself a prophet because it can get confusing. And I don't really think of myself as a prophet. I just think of myself as a guy who has, who when I talk to God, he tells me these things. <laughs> okay? And then I share that. That's all. Okay? So. Don't call yourself a prophet if you have this gift. or um, It's a little weird, okay? 
um, a little confusing for people. Second thing, whatever message or thing that God gives you, it should always, 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 when it is compared to God's word, it should always, always line up. It should never contradict what God's word already has said here. Okay? So if God were to tell me, yeah, uh, when you do the consultation, tell that person to embezzle a million dollars from their company. Ah, I don't think that's you, God. Right? Because the Bible already said, thou shalt not steal. Okay, so do you understand? The gift of prophecy should always be under the authority of Scripture. If it comes between prophetic utterings or whatever you want to call it, or words and Scripture, Scripture always wins, okay? Always, 100%, 110%. So understand that, um, especially if you receive some kind of you know, prophetic ministry. All right? It should never contradict the Bible, and if it does, run. Run for the hills and tell everybody else that it's not good. All right? Um, okay, the other ones will be faster. Service, the spiritual gift is practical work that Christians do for other people, and it results in their spiritual benefit. Okay, another way to think of this is this. A person with the gift of service, when they do a physical act of service, it bears spiritual fruit. Okay? And, and it really is like a, an act of service, serving somebody. Someone who's always, you know, looking to serve. You know those people who are like, when you ask hey, can someone do this? And then they just run. They probably don't have the spiritual gift of service. But the people who go, oh, yeah, sure. And they do with the smile. Those people, not all the time, but most of the time, they have the spiritual gift of service. Okay? I myself do not have the spiritual gift of service. Okay? But you may think, oh, well, pastor, yeah, he's too good for it. You know, he's got the gift of prophecy, but, not, you know, not the gift of, of service. How convenient. Um, <laughs> actually in my opinion I think the gift of service is maybe one, the best maybe it's in, the, it's in the conversation you know why because Jesus served and you know why we, one of his titles is the servant king he's the king who doesn't need to serve but he serves anyway he serves you why because he loves you so when you have the gift of service, I think that's like one of the best, even though it may seem like oh, so menial. It really isn't, in my opinion. Okay, Next, teaching. This gift is the ability to communicate biblical truths and doctrines to all kinds of people, you know, varying educational backgrounds, in such a way that they understand and maybe even are inspired to apply. Not just understand, but they're inspired too. Okay? So that's the gift of teaching. Um, exhorting. Or exhortation. This gift is a spiritual ability to urge and encourage others in, uh, to growth in their relationship with Jesus, to grow in their living out the truth of the gospel. The way I, I think I have this gift, um, the way I like to think of it is it's like a personal coach. So you're all on a journey, right, from the moment you were converted to the moment that you're going to meet Jesus. And all throughout the Bible, it talks about how it's a process of maturation. You're supposed to be growing, not be like a child tossed to and fro, like it says in uh, Ephesians, right? You're supposed to grow. I'm here to be your coach, and I'm going to tell you, hey, come on, let's do it. Oh, here's something that, that can help you. 
that's exhortation. If you have that gift, you might have, um, if, you, if you do that, you might have the gift of exhortation. Okay, you encourage others to grow in their relationship with Jesus. Next, contributing or giving. This gift is the ability to give material things like money, but also other things, material, and to give generously. And not only generously, but what does it say there? Um, in generosity, that word actually um, in the Greek is haploteti, and that word also means simple and simple and single-minded. In other words, when you give, you don't give with an ulterior motive, like you know, trying to politic, right? Buy some favor from them, or trying to like you know get them to scratch your back. No, they give with haploteti. No ulterior motives. By the way, you don't have to have a lot of money to have this gift. You can be poor and have the spiritual gift of giving. And we see that in the parables, right? The widow. So if you have the spiritual gift, don't let the devil and his lies um, about your financial scarcity and situation uh, prevent you from using your spiritual gift that God gave you. Acts of mercy, or sorry, leading. The gift, this gift is the ability to successfully preside over a group and or ministry. And, it, and when you lead, when that group is under your leadership, it produces spiritual fruit in those that are being led. Okay? And you do this, like it says, with earnest diligence, with zeal. All right? Acts of mercy. This is the ability to have compassion on people who are in distress. Okay? Compassion on people who are in need, in distress, widows, sick people, um, you know, natural disasters, um, you know, children at risk. And not just that, not just you, know, you see a commercial and you start crying. That's, that doesn't mean you have an act of mercy. It has to also be coupled with a desire to act, to do an action that lessens their suffering. Okay? It has to be an act. It can't just be like, oh, I'm so sad. You know, you have to have an act that actually helps their suffering. And what's really cool, it says, acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And so you do it with a cheerful, ready manner, like, let me add it. I want to do it. That's the spiritual gift of acts of mercy. So there you go, seven illustrations of what being a living sacrifice to God looks like. Um, we're going a little long. I, I apologize, but there's just so much here. Um, lastly, I want to leave you with this, okay? Um, as you practice your spiritual gifts, here are seven principles, okay? This is me being your practicing exhortation. I'm being your coach here. When you practice your spiritual gifts, here are seven important principles that I've kind of learned the hard way in my own life um, and, and from other theologians and pastors as well. So the first, uh, no particular order, Every genuine spiritual gift comes from God, okay? It all comes from God. It says it right there. Next, each person who believes that Jesus is God's son and that he resurrected is given a spiritual gift. If you believe that, you have a spiritual gift. Make no doubt about it. You may just not know what it is, okay? God, next one, God gives us spiritual gifts that we would use them and not let them collect dust. So, if you're a Christian, you have a gift, now we'll use it. Go use it. All right? 
There are some, next one, biblical instructions that apply to everybody, regardless of whether you have that corresponding spiritual gift. In other words, I don't have the gift of giving, so I don't really think I need to give. I don't have the gift of hospitality, so I don't really need to be hospitable, right? No, because in other parts of the Bible, it gives a general instruction to all believers to be hospitable and to be generous, to be giving, to be prayer. Okay, so um, there are a lot of things that Jesus and, you know, that we learn from the word of God, all believers are supposed to do, regardless of whether you have that gift. If you have that gift, it just creates a lot of fruit, but you're still supposed to do it even if you don't have it. Make sense? Okay, so here, if we hear that excuse being used in our church, let's in genuine live agree to check it, all right? Five, spiritual gifts are not the same thing as natural talents. A person who is, for example, good at music and then later becomes a Christian, hey, they were a skilled musician before they were a Christian, so that's not a spiritual gift. That's a natural talent. It's a different, okay? Um, if you're, you were really organized before, and now you're organized or not organized, maybe that's the spiritual gift of, I don't know, that's not a spiritual gift. But you get the point, right? <laughs> spiritual gift of chaos, no. Uh, spiritual gifts are powered by the Holy Spirit. It's not a human natural talent that you were born with. Um, it's a talent, it's a gift that God gives you when, when you're reborn in Christ. Understand? Okay, uh, your talents, you can still use those for church. I mean like, you know, Andy and Alex, we see that every Sunday. That's not a spiritual gift, what they do. That's a talent, and, uh, but they still use it for God. The best and most certain way to discover what your spiritual gift is, if, so this one, you're wondering, what is my spiritual gift? I wonder. Here it is. The best, most certain way to find out what your gift is, is this. It's not to go online and go spiritual gift survey and then f answer a bunch of questions. Listen, those are fine and dandy. They can help. The problem with those are it's a shortcut. And it doesn't, it's not as effective, okay? It's not as effective in helping you discover what your spiritual gift is. So you just need to really just dwell richly in God's word, live it, breathe it, you know, uh, love it. Then you just start serving, kind of like a shotgun approach if you haven't really served before. Just serve in different ways. And then you see the results. Okay, and then you get feedback. This is pretty important too from your church's leaders and from your fellow members. Yes, did I try? You know, when I did this, I wanted to do this to love you and bless you. Were you loved and blessed? Not really. <laughs> and if like 99% says no, then hey, no problem. Maybe you have a different spiritual gift. You have one. Don't worry. Okay. So you need to get feedback from your leaders and from your fellow members. Do not confuse your spiritual gifts with spiritual character. What does that mean? You all have heard the sad stories of people who are very gifted in preaching. That's a spiritual gift. And then, you know, a year later you hear that they embezzled the church funds or they committed adultery. Spiritual gifts, you can be operating at top level at spiritual gifts and be horrible in your spiritual character. It can happen. So be aware of that and don't let that happen in your life. And understand you have to give attention, careful attention to both. You following me? Okay, so don't be fooled by your own performance thinking, oh, I'm so doing so well with these gifts and so fruitful. Your character too. Last, <clears throat> your spiritual gift is for the purpose of building one another up in Christ's love. This is probably the most important one. Build up one another in his love and maturity. If you use your spiritual gift without the love of Christ, then it's for nothing. That's from 1 Corinthians 13.3. 
And you're also going to give an account of your work to God. That comes, you're like, where is that? That's in 1 Corinthians 3.13. Read it. You will give an account of your work to God. How did you use your spiritual gift? I gave it to you. Is it being used or is it sitting on the shelf collecting dust? Hopefully after today's message, you're all discovering. Again, it's a process of discovering. Some of you may not know what your spiritual gift is. That's what I'm here for, Pastor Susan, to help you discover what that is, okay? So we'd be more than happy, trust me, to do that. All right, let's uh, wrap up. Let's pray. I know there was, we're long. Um, apologize to you for that, but I hope it was a blessing to you um, as you learn about this and what it looks like to be a living sacrifice. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you for giving us these words of what it looks like to be a living sacrifice. You ask us to be a living sacrifice, to offer ourselves to you that way, but maybe we didn't really know what that looked like or what it meant. But through verses 3 and 8 today, and hopefully through this message, you showed us and you gave us a picture. This is what it looks like. Um, this is one way, at least, it looks like to be a living sacrifice. Lord, you also gave us these pink cards. And as a church, we're going around talking about what is our kingdom dream. I pray, O oh Lord, that we would not make the same mistake that King David did in having these great dreams, but then not actually asking you about it. So, Lord, I pray that as we fill these out, and we should because uh, we're being asked to as a church, but as we fill these out and post it, on the board or as we put in the offering basket that we're saying, Lord, this is my dream for you, for your kingdom. What do you think? What do you want me to do? And I pray that we would offer this, um, our kingdom dreams on these little pink cards with an open hand, asking you to be the driver, not us. Thank you, Lord. And in Jesus' name, we pray. Amen.